0: The Christian Andriacchio case was prematurely closed by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain and follow private investigator Sheila Waisaki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Christian. This is Without Warning. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised.
1: On the last few episodes, you have listened in on conversations of the people in power, the ones that can make or break an investigation, the ones that take taxpayer money to do their jobs, the ones that are to protect and serve. You have heard in their own voices their abilities to do their jobs or the reasons they don't. Anyone listening to these episodes could be in the Andreacchio's position. And for those who think it can't happen to them, I get calls from mothers across the country that never thought they could be in that position. Listening to the past few episodes has been hard to do. It is important for my listeners to hear firsthand How the Andriacchios have been treated. Me telling you isn't the same as you hearing it for yourself. Ask yourself: Would you want this cast of characters showing up if you were in the Andriacchios' position? In the next two episodes, I will be talking to Ray to get updates and answer questions. The top story in this episode is the resolution to bring in the Department of Justice. It was voted on and approved on election day. Was it for show, or is Meridian taking the first positive step forward? Time will tell. The election has taken place, but the results are being reviewed. Ray will answer some questions about the review to the best of her knowledge. Michael Grace is the first candidate to stand up to the way things have always been done in over 30 years, maybe more. Bravo to his courage. If I don't get to your questions in the next two episodes, keep sending them. I will get to your questions, share them on my field notes, and you can view them on my YouTube channel without warning. Of course, my Patreon members can ask any time. Let's jump in into my conversation with Ray. So, what's going on with the box count in Michael Grace and Cassie Coleman's election? Well, we just found out that I think Tuesday, Michael will be
2: starting the Clark County. Box audit, or, or whatever the, the I don't know exactly what the correct term is. I call it a recount, but it's not really a recount. And then the other counties I know Wayne County has agreed to it, Kempers agreed to it. I don't know if Lauderdale has agreed yet. I know that she, Don Jill Johnson, the circuit clerk sent Michael a letter basically saying, Why do you want to do a recount? You won Lauderdale County. Well, I mean, that's really not. I mean, yes, he won Lauderdale County, but if there's notes there, That should have been counted. He might have won Montefiore County by more votes than, you know, the 100 or 150 that he won by. The recount will start on Tuesday and then just kind of progress. He really doesn't know how long it will take him in each county. Tuesday we'll have a better idea.
1: And do you know how it works is there a representative from both candidates? Well, it doesn't have to be, but Cassie
2: served Michael, I think he said on uh yesterday he was served or someone at his home was served saying that she wanted to be present or her representative present when he was reviewing the boxes in each county.
1: And if the box does not match the numbers that were reported, what happens then? Do you know?
2: I don't know enough about it to probably speak very intelligently about it. I think it just depends on what the error is. You know, if it's just that maybe I think that like we're they may have thrown out, say, for example, in Kemper County, they threw out 60, 62, something like that, absentee ballots, because they said that there was some question about them. Well, if he looks at, you know, those 62, and he, they determine that maybe 20 of those 62 could be counted, then I think they just add it to the count. I think if it becomes something more like voter fraud, then... I guess it then goes to more like a legal system or judge would decide if they're just going to throw the votes out or if they're going to you know have another election or what they would do. You know, if it comes to where you find where people who are deceased, there's an absentee ballot that's been filled out for them and things like that.
1: Well, then that becomes more like voter fraud. Basically, starting Tuesday, hopefully, they'll do the box examination. Right. It'll start, and it may, again,
2: because no one has really ever done this, that's on Michael's team. We really don't know how lengthy a process it will be.
1: Nobody ran against Bilbo Mitchell for 30 years. Is that correct? Right. I don't think so. I think
2: he was appointed And I I could be wrong about this, but I think it was kind of the same situation as Cassie. I think he was appointed at the end of someone's, you know, someone retired early. He was appointed, served off the last year, and then ran to be elected and then was never opposed from then on.
1: So pretty much Michael Grace is the first person to step up and run against anybody in Meridian.
2: Right. You know, and I think that that was what was so shocking probably to Cassie and to even Bilbo is because they weren't expecting anybody to you know run against her I think from what I've been told that in the past even when there were people who were talking about running against Bilbo and even Cassie prior to Michael qualifying there's always something done to discourage that you know I think someone was going to run against Bilbo Four eight years ago, and he just hired him as an ADA. He wouldn't run against him. Some of the similar things that Cassie did, I and mean, Cassie did some of the similar things, and discouraged people from running against her uh, because when you're in that position, you know you can make an attorney's life more difficult. They're running the risk of losing. And then if they lose, then they have to deal with the DA for another four years.
1: That says a lot about Michael for running against her, in my opinion. We're going to talk about the DOJ. You were at the meeting that the city council voted on the Department of Justice coming in. Can you kind of explain what happened at the meeting?
2: There was, you know, they just called for the vote. And then one of the only councilmen that didn't vote for the DOJ to come in He made a motion saying that to stall the vote or to hold off on the vote because there had been some concern brought up by the city attorney that it would violate the Hatch Act, which I really couldn't figure out how that would impact the election. The election was actually going on that day that the meeting was at Then the Councilman Johnson said, you know, that they basically want to take a vote, whether to proceed with the vote. So they took the vote, and that was four to one. So then they turned around and had the vote, and everybody voted to call them in, except for Thomas, Councilman Thomas.
1: And when you bring them in, what was the actual vote on? What were they voting on? The resolution, I think, states that they're asking the
2: Department of Justice to come in to investigate how the case was handled, not the case, because they know that that's really not in Department of Justice area, I guess you'd say, but they can come in and investigate if everything was handled appropriately, if there was any obstruction of justice or any, you know, anything done incorrectly or intentionally by, you know, whether that's Marine Police Department. Now, I guess they don't really have any say-so other than Marine Police Department. They're not really calling them in to look at MBI and everybody. But I think that the concern by some people, you know, like the mayor and Richie McAllister and people was you have them come in and you can't really tell Department of Justice, you can't corral them in to just this one little area. Once they come in, they can then go look at anything they want to go look at. And so I think you know, if they come in and look at Meridian, that's going to then proceed to them looking at the DA's office and then possibly NBI and possibly the Attorney General's office. The
1: people that are worried are the ones mainly that were in the leaked meeting, correct? Yes,
2: I would think so. You know, Cassie went, you know, that day, the meeting was at nine o'clock that morning. And after the vote, she immediately, within an hour or two, put out a statement, which I felt was kind of defensive in that she was saying, you know, that they weren't asking them to come in and look at the DA's office. The DA's office wasn't involved, that they'd just be looking at City of Meridian or Meridian Police Department. That's not necessarily true. I mean, it would involve her office because that's been one of our main gripes or complaints has been that the DA's office, in my opinion, overstepped their boundaries and dictated to the police department how they were going to conduct the investigation. I mean, I feel like if they come in and talk to the police department, Marine Police Department is then going to place blame on the Bureau's office.
1: At this moment, they voted yes to have the Department of Justice come in And then, as I understand it, Richie McAllister was throwing out names of people to give. the resolution, Resolution. they're calling it a resolution. Well, at the work session,
2: he had this typed up list of people that he gave to all the councilmen and were saying that this was people that they recommended they they contact. But one of the people I know, names that they said was not even with Department of Justice, was he's a politician who actually did fundraising for Percy. So I'm sure if they sent it to him, he wouldn't go, you know, he'd throw it in the garbage. I mean, they probably already had a phone conversation with him saying, oh, okay, you're going to be getting this. Make sure it doesn't go anywhere. You know, we've already, I forwarded a copy of the resolution to Cynthia, our attorney, and then she has forwarded to her contact at the Department of Justice. And then Saturday, yesterday morning, I posted on Facebook, because we still had not heard anything, that was on the 5th, they told me that they would send me a copy of the letter and the signed resolution once, you know, Percy signed it, and they mailed it off, that they would let me know who they mailed it to and send me a copy of everything. Well, I had never received anything. And we had even asked Councilman Johnson last week about it, and he said he would check, and get back with us. Well, we had not heard anything. So yesterday morning, I got up and I posted and basically said, in Justice for Christian, there's almost 13,000 people. And we have a voice. And if we kind of focus our efforts at one thing at a time and kind of hit people in a concerted effort, you know, I think we'll get further. And so I said, you know, I think Percy Bland is who we need to focus on Monday. And, you know, they have not sent this resolution to Department of Justice. It's been almost two weeks. We need to put pressure on him to, you know, let us know what his true intentions are if this was just kind of something to save face and it wasn't sincere or was it really a sincere action? Well, the people on Justice for Christian didn't wait till Monday. They immediately started emailing and calling and texting and and all. And so Percy actually sent someone in Justice for Christian that he knew a copy of the signed resolution where he had signed it on the 12th. And he told them that it, mailed, it had been already mailed out. You know, we don't really have proof of that and we don't know who it was mailed out to. So I sent a, a copy of the signed resolution to Cynthia so that she could forward it and they, you know, and hopefully it would get to the right people. I wonder if he certified it, Ray. I said we were going to check on it, you know, tomorrow during normal business hours and just maybe try and get some proof that it actually was mailed and you know like you said certified or who they mailed it to so that we could contact that person and say would you receive this and you know, you know we just wanted to make sure that the correct people at Department of Justice and make sure that even got to Department of Justice versus going to a politician or someone who may or may not give it to the right person.
1: So the big concern really is Richie McAllister and Percy Bland are the people that are requesting it. But Richie McAllister, after hearing him in the leaked meeting, has a lot to lose.
2: Well, exactly. And in the work session, the mayor said that he assured me that if it, he found out that anyone in his office had acted inappropriately and been sharing Christian's autopsy photos or anything that they would be immediately fired. Now, I find it very hard to believe that he doesn't already know that Richie has been sharing the autopsy photos and did have them on his computer at work and actually, you know, requested the case file from his work computer. That was kind of how it was left.
1: I believe you have a recording of him going over the autopsy pictures with a citizen from Meridian.
2: Yes, he invited this person up to, his. I actually have that he come up to his office, then proceeded to specifically show him autopsy photos, talk about how yes, he was going to have to, I think he said piss on a dead kid's memory to you know get us to stop. Just very disrespectful, very inappropriate. In my opinion, shows that there's an agenda. I feel like that the case file, and since we've gotten the FOIA request as far as who sent the FOIA request in, when they sent the FOIA request in. So I just think that's the basis for proving conspiracy because I think about this all the time, like trying to connect the dots with this case file. The two people who stood to benefit when the case file was released was Cassie and Whitley. Cassie wanted the case file released. She heard in the meeting asking repeatedly, can we release the case file? there has to be some type of coordination between her and Frankie Wagner for Frankie to know to request the case file that very same day I'm waiting I, f- I have sent another FOIA request asking for them to tell me the date and the time that they sent out the information to these people They sent me the people who you know requested it and when they requested it and The date that they received the request, but they did not send me when they actually sent it to them and how they sent it to them. Because Frankie is releasing text messages and things from the case file prior to, way prior to us ever receiving the case file. You know, we know that they sent it to him electronically. I mean, he has said that on Facebook that he got it electronically, but they sent, they mail it to us, and it takes ten days. For us to get it, but yet they've received it electronically. I feel like it just proves that there's, again, coordination of efforts because... Frankie, of course, his main concern is Whitley. I mean, he's wanting it to get us off Whitley's or get people off of Whitley's case. His only concern is Whitley. Cassie, you know, of course, is wanting it out there because she thinks that if it's put out there, that it's going to discredit us and people are going to turn against us, which in turn will turn people against Michael and he will lose support. Because I think, you know, his base, so much of his base was people who supported justice for Christian. And so if you take that base away, he's no longer such a threat to her, Joel Hamilton. And he tells you that he foia the case file. That's how he got it, but yet he didn't. So one of them gave him that information. So it's just, you can connect the dots and there's this coordination of efforts. If they send me the information and they don't show that they sent Frankie that case file on The eighth in the morning, then Cassie, or I guess Gypsy from the AG's office, leaked him some information before he ever got the case file. If we can prove that he was posting stuff online before. They say they sent it to him. Well, then somebody gave it to him ahead of time. Cassie had been telling people they could come up there to her office and see the case file prior to that. So I really think she had a copy of the case file prior to the meeting. You know. And then, her, of course, her father was going around telling people they could come up to the office and see the case file. And when you start looking at, you know, going over with Cynthia, all the different people who requested the case file and who have been sharing the case file online, you know, nine times out of 10, it goes back to Cassie. You know, well, they're a Cassie supporter. They're a Cassie supporter. It all goes back to Cassie, typically.
1: I got to go back to the Department of Justice. So basically, you're waiting to hear whether or not Percy Bland sent it to the proper person at the DOJ. In order to have them come in, you were told that you were going to get a copy of the letter, right? Right. Yeah. They told me that I would get a copy of the letter and the signed resolution.
2: And, you know, they're real quick to say that just because they request doesn't mean that they'll actually come in. And that's true. All they can do is request. But I do feel like it would be very unlikely that you have a city government to ask Department of Justice to come in and look at something and them not do it.
1: I agree. Um, Especially with all the attention you've gotten internationally. I mean, everybody's watching to see what happens, especially with the DOJ. And what's concerning is who's in charge of asking for that. It's a, a lot of politicians making phone calls to potentially other politicians. Right, right. That have
2: connections with DOJ. You know, that's what I'm concerned about is they'll pull strings with someone who sits on some committee or something who will make a phone call and say,
1: we don't want anything done. I'm going to switch over to the leaked meeting. I know you heard the leaked meeting earlier. After you heard that Tell me what your impressions were.
2: Well, honestly, I have never listened to the entire linked meeting. I've listened to bits and pieces of it because it just makes me disgusted and angry and everything when I listen to it. So I, I take it in small doses, so a little bit here and a little bit there. And of course, I've heard um, and read so many of the comments and different things of other people that were outraged over the attitudes and all. I just can't tolerate listening to most of those people because it makes me very angry at their, in some instances, their disrespect for Christian, their disrespect for us as victims, families of victim. And I feel like we're victims, really. We've become their victim. They sit there and they lie and they know they're lying. And it seemed very, some of the parts that I did listen to, it seemed to me very staged I felt like it was almost thought that they knew that they were being recorded at times, but then I couldn't believe that they would say some of the stuff they said if they really knew they were being recorded. But it just seemed staged in the way that some of the things they said, their total lack of knowledge of the case, but yet, you know, they go on about how it's been investigated so many times and so much work has been put into this case, but it's like, but you don't even know the case. I don't understand why some of the people were there that were there I mean, I don't understand why Mickey McAllister was there. I don't understand really why Tony Green was there. I would have thought that like Marvin Sanders would have been there since he was the attorney who presented the case. So I, I didn't really understand some of the dynamics in the meeting, I guess. It's what we've dealt with for the last five and a half years. To me, every single person sitting in that room had was there with their own agenda, if that makes sense. It was like, well isolated, they all each had something that they wanted to get out of the meeting, whether that was to shift blame, or that was to throw somebody else under the bus, or whether that was like in Cassie's situation, I felt like her trying to pretend that she Had some compassion, and she can't even really pretend that well. Then you had Tony Green thrown in there that I don't even know what his agenda was, why he was there. I mean, I'd never even heard his name before. Well, and I think that even in one, I may have this confused with some other meeting, but I think it was in that one where they're even talking about, like, Whitley's jacket. You know, and saying, Well, oh, you get her with the jacket back. Well, I'm thinking, you know, number one, why are y'all so worried about Whitley getting her jacket back? You're more worried about Whitley getting her jacket back than you are, you know, all the multiple things that should have been done in the case. The other thing is, why should she get, be getting her jacket back? Because y'all are acting like this case is over, done with, never going to see the light of day. And then the other thing was, I think there was a discussion about Arrington talked to the expert. Well, I mean, Arrington, we gave him that information over and over. Actually, we'd call him and say, have you talked to Knox and Associates yet? Have you talked to Arden yet? No, no, but I'm going to. We'd wait a few days. Then we'd email Knox you know, and Associates and say, have you heard from Arrington? No, we haven't heard from him. I mean, this went back and forth and giving him their number and giving, you know, I mean, he would say, oh, I mean, I really want to talk to him. I'd like to hear their theory well they're willing to talk to you Aaron can just call them but he wanted to act like they weren't available or you know he didn't have an offer he was kept in I think that's the one thing Cassie did do I think she just flat out said I mean could you have called them? And he said, yes. All of this information, you know, people on the podcast, with couple would coming, you know, out, and there would be things that would come up. And the other side would try to act like, oh, well, yeah, after five years, they come up with this information and it's, you know, it's, it seems funny to me. They're just now finding out about this. Well, no, that's not true. We had given it to them three years before, multiple times. The person who Hayes talked to on the boat. I mean, we had given it to bilbo we had given it to the the police department i had faxed it to the attorney general's office i mean that was not new. it wasn't like it just we after five years stumbled upon him and you know and got him to make this statement i mean that was old news
1: have some listeners' questions. I know you and I've talked about when Chief Lee was in charge. Somebody asked if any private investigators ever talked to him, and I know the answer is no to that, but did any other law enforcement person like Arrington, and I laugh saying that, did Arrington talk to Chief Lee about the case? And document it? No, not that
2: I'm aware of. I mean, if, if they did, they didn't document it. The only person that I know talked to him, and I think I have this right, was Kate Royals that wrote the first story, you know, the Mississippi Today article. I think that she, and I could have this wrong, but I think that she spoke to him by phone maybe, and he told her that he didn't remember anything, that that was too long ago. And of course, at that time, it had been about That was in 2017, so it had been three years. Then when Crime Watch came, they were going to go to Durant, where he was assistant police chief, try to interview him. And every time they called there, they were told that he wasn't, he was off, he wasn't at work. And then the last time they called, the person told them that he no longer worked there. But then about a month or two later... He actually, there was some article like newspaper thing in Durant that he was in. And I mean, he was still working there. So he had them live for him.
1: Somebody asked about the mattress that had the cut in it. So did the mattress have blood on it? Was the mattress taken into evidence and tested?
2: No, it was not taken into evidence and there was no pictures of it taken. I do not think it was any blood on it. I never saw it. Josh is the I didn't go to the apartment until after the apartment was all the furniture had been taken out. No, Josh has always said that it looked like somebody had taken a knife and like stabbed it in the middle of the mattress and, you know, kind of cut a hole or something out in it. But he it's he's never mentioned anything about it being blood on the mattress. Okay. No, I was just saying we'd always put that down to they were looking for his lockbox.
1: Let's talk about the lockbox. For the people that don't know, can you tell them what was in the lockbox and why they would be looking for it?
2: Well, People on the boat said that Christian always told them that he had a lockbox that had $6,500 or $7,000 in it and a pistol. I never saw a lockbox. They said that he had told them before, you know, just kind of passing because sometimes the work they do out there is dangerous and something can happen. And he had fallen overboard one time. And anyway, it was, you know, I think he almost drowned before I got him back in. and So, I mean, I think he went out and bought like a $300 wife jacket after that. He had told them if anything ever happened to him on the boat to make sure that Josh knew about the lockbox that had money in it so he could have the money and whatever and so they're the ones actually who told us about flop bop so they didn't know where he kept it but he just always told them that he had the flop bop we felt like that was probably if that was true that they was looking for that.
1: And you never saw the lockbox. It was never returned to you, correct?
2: No, no. I mean, when he lived here, and I mean, this was when he was younger. This wasn't, you know, right before he left. When he was living here and he was, you know, 17, 18 years old, he had a a kind of a baby blue looking kind of silvery lockbox thing that he just kept Really, kind of a childhood thing, kept things in lives and different things. And that was the only lockbox that I knew that he ever had. And so I don't know if it was the same one, but no, that was never discovered. And we never really confirmed that there was a lockbox or not.
1: Was the grand jury ever told about the eyewitnesses?
2: No, they were told about text messages on the phone, which I mean, I think is appropriate to show to a grand jury to give them the full picture, but I also think that they weren't then given the information about everything else. You know, they won't, they specifically have said they were not told about rigor at all. That was never mentioned. They were told about lividity, but when they asked questions about the lividity, they were given misinformation. Now, whether that was intentional or whether they really didn't know what they were talking about, I don't know. They were told, you know, when they were asking questions about why, would he have lividity on the back of his calf if he was over the bathtub? They said that gypsy told him that, well, when you die, all your blood goes down to your feet, your lower extremities, and settles, and that's why it was there. Well, you and I know that's really not an accurate description of lividity. So again, whether that's just ignorance on her part or whether that was intentional, I don't know. They were not told about Luminol at all on um, the Luminol result. I mean, those were kind of the, some of the biggies that they weren't told about. They weren't getting told about anything, any person that was talked to that would dispute suicide. They weren't told about any interviews, let me put it that way. No, they weren't really told about any interviews because there weren't really any interviews in the case file. You know, the only interviews that was in the case file was Whitley and Dylan.
1: And it was their statements, right? Not even Right. Right,
2: yeah. The first set of investigators report was in there where they, he had talked to Whitley and Dylan. And of course, you know, again, that wasn't really, definitely wasn't an interrogation. He just literally wrote down what they said, which was, you know, of course, the same thing, basically, that was told to the police department with a few inconsistencies. And, you know, that was the end of that. No questions, no follow-up questions about, well, why not, you know, why didn't you call 911 sooner or anything like that, which is basically he documented the story they told, and that was it. You know, all the different people that were talked to that we even found out later, you know, through your investigation, Whitley and Dylan both were supposed to take a polygraph. Well, Dylan was supposed to take a polygraph. He was scheduled twice and didn't show up. And then, of course, Whitley refused from the get go, but she wasn't going to take a polygraph.
1: A lot of people have asked this question, and I'm sure that in your group, they're asking the same thing. They want to know if Christian could have been shot in the truck before he made it to the apartment.
2: No, that's been recently. I mean, that's come up off and on in Justice for Christian, you know, since the podcast came out. But just recently, like last week, there was a big discussion about it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess you can't say for sure, but I only not think I just don't know why there would be the blood spatter in the bathroom that the luminol picked up if he was shot somewhere else besides bathroom. And I just think that there's so many moving parts to that. You know, same ones that everybody brings up is, you know, well, this happened during the daytime. So you're going to move him from a truck to upstairs bathroom in broad daylight and not get, you know, I mean, we know they cleaned up the bathroom, but they would have had to have cleaned up more than just the bathroom. I just find that logistically, that would be very difficult.
1: Right. Was Houston ever questioned regarding the case and what he knew? Not by the police, but he was, he did have a conversation with me, a long conversation. He was quite helpful. Right. But yeah, before that time, I
2: don't think anybody had talked to him. If they Again, if they did, well, he would have told you probably, if they had, but if they had a talk to him, they obviously didn't document it, didn't put it in a case file. And our only, con- we had no contact with Houston because, you know, again, we didn't really feel that he was going to help us because he was engaged to Kimberly and we went on to marry her. It wasn't like we were buddies or anything.
1: I will continue the conversation with bonus episodes on my Patreon page without warning please go to withoutwarningpodcast.com and buy a t-shirt and show your support to Christian Andreacchio.
0: Christian's family gives their full permission for any and all details to be shared and hope that the truth will come out. If you know anything at all, call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at shilawaasaki.com. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation or is actively thinking about taking their life, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, join Patreon today. Without warning, executive director, executive producer, and host, Sheila Wysocki. Mix and mastering by resonant recording and announcer, Tim Evans.